Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we start a series based on Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land, Volume 2, Dr. Newfeld's series in Daniel, with a second volume called The Triumph of the Kingdom of God. So let's go to Dr. Newfeld now. When most of us think of the book of Daniel, you know, we think about Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, or about that off-field night when the writing was on the wall for the king of Babylon. If you went to Sunday school, no doubt you remember the lessons you learned. You might even have sung a song about daring to be a Daniel and daring like him to stand alone. That is, we were to know that when we stood with God as Daniel did, we were never actually alone. But of course, these events aren't just wonderful examples to teach us about the life of faith. These were actual historical events. These are amazing events that taught the Jewish people who were in exile in Babylon that God is not only the God of Jerusalem, but he's also the God of Babylon. He's not just God in the good times. He is God in the bad times. And that's because for those Jews who lacked authentic faith, They thought that when the Babylonians defeated the Jews in 586 BC, they were more than just defeated. You see, the Babylonians entered the Jewish temple, and then they robbed everything of value from it, and then they burned the temple of God and pulled her massive, beautiful stones down. You know, there were Jews who thought that this event just couldn't happen. You know, Psalm 132 verse 7 says, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. See, that verse was referring to the temple, the dwelling place of God, the place on earth where God has put his feet. Now, how could an army assail the dwelling place of God? I mean, didn't Psalm 2 say that even though the nations rage and the kings of the earth plot against the Lord and against the Lord's Messiah, well, they would would fail. Hadn't God said that he looked at the plots of the nations and he laughed at those puny attempts and that he held their power in derision? But now the king of Babylon had broken into Jerusalem and he had captured King Zedekiah and butchered all his sons before the king's eyes. It's the last thing he ever saw in this world. And then they put out Zedekiah's eyes and they bound him in bronze shackles and they took him as a humiliated and defeated prisoner to Babylon. And as was the policy with the Babylonians, when they wanted to end a culture for good, they transported a great many survivors to Babylon, leaving only the poorest of the land to remain. So let's get back to those who had a defective faith. You know, they thought that the God of Babylon, Marduk, had defeated the God of Israel. Somehow their faith, because it was a defective one, never got beyond the idea that the God of Israel, for them, well, he was only a tribal deity, just like the gods of the nations around them. But those with a legitimate faith saw things differently. They would have understood the words that were written in 2 Chronicles 36, 14 to 17. That passage says, All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, 
despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. In effect, those with genuine faith knew that the only reason the king of Babylon was able to do what he had done is because the God of Israel had willed it should be so. And it's against this background that we need to read the stories of the book of Daniel. You know, Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace is a wonderful event because it proved that the God of Israel is also God in Babylon. It turns out that the people of God really could sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Indeed, as we find in Daniel chapter 4, even the king of Babylon himself was driven insane until he acknowledged that the God of heaven was God over all. But these amazing events recorded in the book of Daniel only make up one half of this book. And sometimes in my reading of the book, I'm almost convinced that these first six chapters only serve as an introduction to the real drama in the book, which begins in chapter 7. And here's why I think that. When Daniel 7 opens up, we find Daniel living during the reign of Belshazzar, who's the then king of Babylon. Daniel's been removed from political power, and that might seem like a tragedy, but in fact, it was a divine opportunity. God took him out of the action of being involved in government so that he could speak to him and help him understand his experience in Babylon. See, the dreams and visions Daniel had during the later years of his life helped him make sense out of his life and out of the experience of Israel in Babylon. Daniel was led to see that he was not simply a captive from Jerusalem. Rather, he was a partaker of God's plan for all the ages. God allowed this man Daniel to crawl up on top of a huge mountain and see the panorama of human history that was being played out. The captivity of Jerusalem was a part of God's grand plan to to eventually triumph over all the nations. Indeed, Daniel would learn through the visions we read about in chapters 7 to 12 how the triumph of the kingdom of God would come about. The predictions Daniel makes are breathtaking in their accuracy. He sees not only what's going to occur in years ahead, he sees down to the very end of world history and predicts exactly how it's going to turn out. See, there's an interesting lesson to be learned from this. God never sidelines his people. You know, Daniel might have felt that after years of intense activism, he's now removed from power and that his productive years have now come to an end. And that was certainly not the case. God may, according to his designs, remove any man or woman from power or from some activity in which they seem to feel highly fruitful. And it may at that moment seem like his or her best years are now gone. It's never the case. You see, in Daniel's case, his very best years occurred when he was an old man and far removed from the corridors of power and influence. If Daniel had not been removed from political office, he would not have had time to write and and contemplate the visions of God. The best thing that had ever happened from our perspective is that Daniel was taken from political office. Now for us, when we read Daniel 7 to 12, we find ourselves in a form of literature that can seem altogether confusing. The literature of these six chapters is often called apocalyptic literature. Daniel 7 to 12 presents us with a series of dreams and visions 
of strange and frightening beasts that, that speak of events that will culminate in the end of the world. And we might struggle to understand what these visions mean, but we may also struggle to see how any of this is relevant to our own lives. See, I've heard many Christians say that they don't really like all that end-time stuff because that stuff is hard to understand, and so they just feel tempted to skip over it. You know, for my part, you know, in this two-week series, I've decided to give a whirlwind tour of these six chapters focusing on the major events and what those events actually add to our understanding of the final triumph of the kingdom of God. And interestingly enough, in spite of the fact that the book changes so dramatically at chapter 7, the theme of the book remains the same. God is not only God of Jerusalem, he's also God over Babylon. But now in these last six chapters of the book, you know, we find out that God is not only God over Babylon, he's God over all human history, right down to the end of the age. That means that God was controlling the events of Babylon. You know, we might remember that the prophet Isaiah predicted the coming of Cyrus the Great, the Persian ruler, as the one who would allow Israel to return to the promised land. Daniel never lived to see that, but he did live to see the Persians defeat the Babylonians. That is, Daniel did see the beginning of the events that led to the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. See, in that case, we're not unlike Daniel. You know, as we read through these last chapters of this book, we're going to find that we have something in common with Daniel. For we in our day have lived to see a great many very specific prophecies fulfilled that will lead us, like Daniel, to conclude that God's kingdom is moving forward to its eventual and final triumph. Furthermore, we should be able to read these last seven chapters and marvel at how Daniel's prophetic visions have already come to pass. It's going to make us wonder how close we now are to the second coming of Jesus and the final consummation of the kingdom of God. See, seen through these eyes, the visions of Daniel promise to be a very exciting study indeed. You know, some of what we read in Daniel will have been in Daniel's future. But now, 2,500 years later, these matters are in our past. But we're going to see how these prophecies came true, and then we're surely going to be able to see how the ones he made about things yet in the future will also come to pass. We're so grateful for all of our listeners from coast to coast to coast. If you'd like to join the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, we'd love to invite you to become a member of our new 1119 Fellowship, our monthly donor program. We're also grateful to be able to offer all of our listeners the opportunity to participate in a special match campaign this month that was launched at our recent virtual event, The Gathering. For every dollar you give toward the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding opportunities to share the truth of God's word in Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, perhaps this is the perfect time. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Many of us fear the future more than anything else. You know, when we're young, the future might seem like our friend, but as the years pass, we begin to see how vulnerable we are. 
We're more prone to disease. The ravages of aging tell us that our years are indeed coming to an end, and the future seems so much more ominous. We might also wonder about the world and how it's going. You know, how will events impact my life? You know, when we get to, let's say, middle age, we see that half our lives are over, and we might ask, what now? And what we need is faith. We need the kind of faith that allows us to say that the future is as bright as the promises of God. See, if someone asks me what my future holds, I tell them, you know, it holds Jesus. So let's start with chapter 7. I'm reading now verses 1 to 3. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So let me start with a spoiler alert. Daniel 7 teaches us that Jesus will triumph over the future. When all the kingdoms of men have fallen, his will stand forever. Let me also say that the first part of Daniel's vision was for him in his future, but it's for us a part of our history. And that's what makes this book so exciting. The theme of the first vision is that God controls the saga of human history. Now, you're going to note several things from these three verses that we've read. See, Daniel's lying in his bed, and we assume that he's unable to sleep. God is giving him visions that greatly disturb him. He's frightened, and yet he begins to write them down. And there are several elements in the vision. Notice the details. First, he mentions the four winds of heaven. Then second, Daniel mentions that the winds are blowing and the sea, which is being churned up, is raging. It's the kind of conditions that ancient sailors feared. You know, this is how sailors would lose their vessels and drown. And so the sea looks terrifying. And then out of that terrifying sea come four very terrifying and strange-looking beasts. Now, you might say that's the stuff of nightmares. We might wake up at night, just like Daniel, and find ourselves upset. That's exactly what Daniel did. His dreams upset him, and he's now awake. And as he is awake, he begins to write down the exact content of what he's seen. But for us who read the dream, the dream itself is interesting because we're far more interested in what the dream means. So let's begin there, and let's take note of the details of Daniel's dream. First, the four winds are the destructive power of God's judgment. You see, Daniel's seen a storm. And he comes to know that it was something to do with God controlling the saga of human history. Great upheaval is coming. Four winds of God's judgment make the sea rage all the more. And someone's going to say, "Ah, but, but how do you know that the wind represents God's judgment? Maybe that's just your interpretation of this text. Maybe it's just you making it say what you want it to say. But consider the following verses from Psalm 89, verses 8 to 11. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Now, Rahab in that passage is the sea monster, and when it rises, God controls it. He even kills it at his own will. Now, we could look at other examples, but, you know, one will suffice. God controls the sea. Now, go ahead to the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, which borrows on a great many of the images from Daniel. 
In Revelation 7, verse 1, John is speaking, and he says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And from that passage, we can see that God controls the four winds. They blow at his approval, and they're held silent at his approval. Or look at Revelation 9, 14, and 15. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So you can see that the judgment is held in the angels and in the four winds. And when the angels release the four winds or when the angels themselves are released, great cataclysmic events happen. And the reason that there's peace today is because God has not released these winds of judgment. And when the wind blows, great turbulence happens. Since that's the will of God, I assume that when Daniel is describing the winds, it is connected with God's judgment. Furthermore, as we read through the first vision, we're going to see that God raises up nations as his judgment on the earth. So Daniel's seen a storm, and he comes to know that it is something to do with God controlling the saga of human history. Great upheaval is coming. Four winds of God's judgment are making the sea rage all the more. You know, the great sea is a picture of the ever-changing, ever-turbulent Gentile world. Look again at Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. It says, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, on each head a blasphemous name. See, John, just like Daniel, sees visions in which beasts rise from the sea. There are always great and terrible world empires that care for nothing more than for power, and they're going to use any evil and horror on humanity to get what they want. It's this that Daniel saw as God caused him you know, to climb on that mountain peak and look into the panorama of future events. He sees four beasts coming out of the sea of humanity. And these beasts are coming great and terrifying world powers. They're attached to great empires. The sea is turbulent. It's restless and it's fierce. And Daniel sees that it was a result of God having released his wind of judgment on a sinful and fallen humanity. And I have no doubt Daniel's filled with horror as he looks into the future. Let's make some application. You know, we can be overcome by a sense of horror when we think of the great evil that yet lies before the human race. I know there are people, you know, who think the world's always going to get better. Well, those are probably the people who know absolutely nothing about history. If we view a fallen world rightly, we're going to come to the conclusion that one power follows another, and that means one war follows another. We may be overcome by a sense of horror as we think of the great evil that that yet lies before the human race. After all, anyone who's ever studied Bible prophecy knows that before Jesus comes back, things will get worse. Great lawlessness will sweep over the earth. Many people will fall from the faith. Unbridled human rebellion against God will be released on this earth. I think if there ever has been a time of horror, it's been the last century, the 20th century. You know, in spite of the peace that that we've experienced here in North America, we're reminded that we live in a world that's quickly lit on fire. Two world wars have come and gone. Hitler killed six million Jews trying to exterminate an entire race of people. 
communism has created millions upon millions of deaths in Russia and in China, combined over 60 million deaths. Warfare has now become so advanced that rich and powerful nations are able to kill by laser-guided weapons that can wreak havoc without ever having actually seen the enemy. You know, we often in our day, you know, applaud the marvelous technological advancements of our age and the great benefit that it has brought to all of us, and it has. But there's a dark side in all of this. It's overwhelmingly frightening. You know, studying the last seven chapters of Daniel is going to introduce us to great nations, rich and powerful. And we will see Daniel becoming increasingly distraught by what he sees. And in chapter 10, he will mention that he becomes so disturbed that his strength leaves him. You know, it's possible for us to have the same reaction. We might think, I'm so glad Jesus is coming and his kingdom will triumph, but until it comes, evil is still possible. If the nations are tumultuous as the raging sea, and if monsters are rising out of the sea, what shall we make of these monsters? But we remember Psalm 89, you, O Lord, control the raging sea. So don't read Daniel 7 to 12 as if the nations are raging out of control and then in some amazing fashion, God arises and and defeats these seemingly unstoppable nations. Read it the way it's meant to be read, that God not only knows what's going to happen, but that God controls what's going to happen and the monsters can go no further than what he has willed. Read Daniel's visions of the future with a growing sense of hope and satisfaction. All history is moving us ever closer to the time of the second coming of Jesus. And that's hope, my brothers and sisters. Thanks so much, John. You know, I got to ask you the question, in what we're hearing, does it make people feel more negative than hopeful? (laughs) Yeah, I suppose uh, there are a lot of things to feel negative about. Now, I I would want to say that You know, we need to keep our eyes on the sovereignty of God. And the reason that's so important in being hopeful is that even in the present hour, God controls all things. If there is good in the world, it's because God has added it into the world. You know, the human heart is on evil all the time, but God has his eye on the human race and has blessed us more than we can imagine. However, when we look to the future, we know that there is a day of evil coming But we need not fear because our God is with us. He will protect us and guard us in all our ways. Let's be hopeful in God. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Kingdom of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Do you want a daily reminder that will help you grow in your faith? Well, we can help. Our beautiful Back to the Bible Canada 2021 Growing in Faith Scripture Calendar is now available to you free of charge. This calendar reminds us of so many things. It reminds us of the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of God's Word, and it reminds us to spend time in the Bible every day. A uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Neufeld is placed within the calendar, encouraging all of us to open up our Bibles. Use your calendar as a daily reminder to practice the discipline of reading God's Word. This resource is filled with encouragement, and it's yours for free. Request your copy today. 
and perhaps consider a gracious gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.